Hey, um, I, had a, uh, I had a prophetic word in the first service. I didn't give it, but um, I just want, it's just super simple. But I saw you guys coming into a new EPOC, E-P-O-C-H, E-P-O-C-H season. And, uh, and I, I, saw, um, I saw Robert and Stephanie saying, oh, we got a new truck. And you were expecting like a, a one-ton four-wheel drive to come up. And, uh, and a 16-wheeler pulled up. And... And Stephanie turned to you and said, is that our new truck? And you said, not what I thought it was going to be. And I feel like uh, the Lord wants you to get your expectations to be bigger than you thought. And I believe that today, uh, I believe the Lord is stretching our faith. Uh, Not just your faith, but like the faith of the congregation is growing. And uh, I feel like there's a massive uh, increase coming to, uh, to obviously this area, but also to this community and this church. And so um, I want to say that you're thinking too small. And I was uh, reminded of Abraham. Sorry, I didn't do this in the first service, but I just wanted to make sure it was right. Uh, but I'm reminded of Abraham when God said to him, hey, you're going to be a father of nations. Come outside and let's walk in the sand. And the Lord's like, Abraham, count the seeds, count the, the grains of sand, and then count the stars. And this was God's idea of a prophetic word for Abraham. Abraham, you're thinking too small. And you have to remember that Abraham couldn't even have children until he's 99. So sometimes the Lord, what the Lord says to us is obnoxiously too big. Is that, is that even a word? Obnoxiously too big. And uh, I feel like the plan the Lord has for you is obnoxiously too big. Like, I feel like it's so big that if you, you, you won't even tell people because they'll think you're bragging. I, I don't brag. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, didn't go over so well. So, so anyway, I bless you with that, and uh, I feel a lot more coming, but we'll just leave it there for right now. You know, um, yeah. You can always tell the size of a man by the size of the problem it takes to discourage him. And the level of sacrifice an environment requires determines the size of people who will follow. Let me say it one more time. The level of sacrifice an environment requires determines the size of people who follow. Um, yeah. When, we, when uh, COVID happened, like you guys, we put up a tent not because we didn't have a beautiful building, because we do, but because we weren't allowed to stay in it, go in it. And then we couldn't have sides. And, you know, we don't have this wonderful weather. So it was pouring rain with no sides on tents. And, I, and we put the school ministry in there because they kind of had to come. And truthfully, you know, they've been on, they were online for like four months, so they were so excited to get together. Anyway, they packed out the tent, pouring rain, we often preach with blankets on us because it was so cold. And, and then people just kept coming and coming. And we started a service in the afternoon, in the evening. And the tent filled up. It was about twice the size. We put two tents together, about twice the size. And then uh, more people kept coming. They couldn't fit in the tents. They were sitting on the floor. And then more people came, couldn't fit in the tents or on the floor. So they got umbrellas and they stood out in the rain for hours while we preached. <laughs> Holy Spirit fell in there. People... People on the wet floor under the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And we did that for nearly a year. And so, you know, we're back in our, back in our church, and last week our, our team's like, we need to go back to the tents. There's something about paying a cost. You know, there's something about paying a cost. There's something about, it, it, you know, like David said, uh, you know, to uh, when he was trying to get this piece of land uh, from this wealthy person to offer a, a sacrifice, the guy said, I'll just give it to you for free. And he said, far be it from me that I should offer God something that cost me nothing. And this is, uh, anyway, anyway, that's all. That's not the message. <laughs> now I got to go longer. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Okay, you got to pray because I'm way, I have to just, I'm going to confess. I'm going to just be, pretend you're my family. This is how I talk to our own church. I'm way ADD. So noise, my church knows like if a baby cries, like shut that kid up and take him out. I never, I never do that, but I, but I always want to. And then I come here and I'm preaching and an ambulance drives by with its lights, swir- you know, swirling and and the siren's going, and I'm like, this, this is a sacrifice. <laughs> if these people get a message that they can, you know, this is going to be like a kid, you know, like some uh, assembly required, <laughs> for sure. So um, I want to talk to you about uh, identity. And um, I want to talk to you about my journey into our royal identity. And um, I... I, when I first came to Bethel, my very first PA, she worked for me seven years. She's a wonderful person. We still have a great relationship. Her name was Nancy, and she's a prophetess. So it's very interesting having your PA be your prophetess, be a prophetess, because it's kind of like, you're fine, how am I? That's how we did life <laughs> all day long. So, uh, and, and Nancy had this thing, like she cried all the time. I, I can still remember the interview I did with her to hire her. She was crying in the interview. And I was like, and she said to me, oh, don't worry about me crying. I cry all the time. I said, okay. Uh, okay. So, and then I found out that she was like, that was what she did. She cried all the time. And, you know, I, I mean, I live with a woman. My, my wife hunts. She, she kills things. She shot a, a deer on the run at 467 yards two years ago with one shot. She is, she's a killer. And she has a bass boat, and she fishes. And she has two horses, and she rides horses. So if someone breaks into our house, I, w- I wake her up I'm like, go downstairs, check that out. <laughs> Call the police. So I- I'm the one in our family who cries all the time. Like, I've like had man- menopause since I was like 30. <laughs> so I live with a, a violent woman. I'm not accustomed to women crying all the time. So I have this PA, she cries all the time. I am not exaggerating, she cries all the time. So, so you know, so, I, and I, I, she worked for me seven years, so I'm always trying to figure out, like, do I, like, is this a happy cry? Because she cries when she's happy, then she cries when she's sad, too. Like, we had to have a budget for Kleenex. <laughs> so anyway, so I come into work. Tuesday is my first work day, usually, so I come into work. And, you know, your PA sits down, like, here's your, here's your plan for your week. So I go into work, like a normal Tuesday. I sit down. Nancy comes in. She's in there. Um, she's not in there three minutes, and she's crying. And I'm like, I'm always like, okay, this, it's super uncomfortable. Seven years of, of it, you know? I'm like, because, you know, I'm trying to figure out, like, is this, our, is this an okay cry? So, 
So she's crying, trying to explain to me what my week's going to be like. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying like, this isn't going to be a very good week, you know. So I say to her, finally I say, are you okay? And she says, yes. I said, are you sure? She said, no. I said, did I do something to hurt your feelings? She said, no. Then she goes, yes. That's awesome. I'm going to take that as a compliment. The devil must be afraid about what I'm about to say today. So finally I said, well, what did I say? And she said this to me. She said, you don't realize how much people value you. You have no idea how much people value you. And you, you, you don't behave like you understand that you're valuable. And you, you walk out of your office and you, and you say things to people and you think you're being funny, but you're destroying with your words the very people you're supposed to be leading. And so I said, did I say something to you? And she, said, and she told me something I had said. It was in joking. And I, I said I was sorry. I gave her a hug. And this is our life. So I want you to understand, like, this happened often. So it wasn't, I didn't even tell Kathy about it. It wasn't a big deal. I went home that night and went to bed and had a dream. Have you ever had a dream that you don't remember the dream, but when you wake up from the dream, the emotion of the dream is still with you, but you can't remember what it is? Well, I woke up with this deep sense of grief, like somebody had just, someone close to me died, something, something like that. But I couldn't remember the dream, and a verse was running through my mind, just a piece of a verse. It's this verse, the world cannot hold up under a pauper when he becomes a king. The world cannot hold up under a pauper or a slave when he becomes a king. I don't know if I dreamt that in the dream that was the verse, but that was in my mind. So I'm, I'm, I feel this overwhelming sense that I'm, I want to I cry. And I lean up against my headboard. I think it's like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, pitch dark. And I'm, I'm trying to get all the way awake. You know that foggy feeling when you first wake up and you're like, what, what? you're between awake and, and, and sleep. So I'm laying against the headboard trying to get myself to wake up and, and, and trying to think about what was in the dream and uh, suddenly I said to the Lord, Lord, are you speaking to me? He said, yes, you are a pauper who's become a king, and it's time for you to change. And immediately I was taken back in a vision to where Nancy said to me, the more, that earlier, the day before, you, you don't realize how much people value you, and you don't carry yourself like you understand that you're valuable. And you're destroying the very people that you're supposed to be leading with your words. And, and, then I, and then the Lord said to me, do you know why Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house? Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house. I don't know if you know the story, but I don't think Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house. I said, no, but I bet you're going to tell me. He said, because a man who's in slavery internally cannot free people who are in slavery externally. So it was necessary for Moses to be raised as a prince so he could learn to free my people. And then the Lord said to me, unlike Moses who was raised to be a prince, you were raised to be a slave, and it's time for you to change. And immediately I was taken in a vision, again, back to my childhood. And my father drowned when I was three. My mother remarried when I was five. A very violent man was married to him eight years. And then she divorced him, and two years later, married another very violent man. And my, my stepfathers both didn't like me. My first stepfather said, you're the trash that came with the treasure. I didn't marry you. I married your mother. You're to be seen and not heard. My first recollection of my, my first stepfather was him beating me with, my, with his belt with my, 
without my underwear on and blood running down my legs and my mother pulling him off of me. And so I was, and so the Lord's point is, you were raised to believe you are not valuable. Nobody cares about what you think. My father used to call me stupid ass instead of my name. That was stupid ass, come here. And I was, I was taught that I was stupid. By the way, I graduated from high school, read on the third grade level, but I couldn't learn because I thought I was stupid. And, and, and so now I'm interacting with the Lord, and he says this to me, it's time for you to change. Now, I don't know how this works. You know, I'm, I'm not the greatest theologian, but I believe, I believe in sovereignty, and I also believe in free will. But when God says you're going to change, it doesn't feel like you have a choice. I, I'm sure you still do, but it doesn't feel like you have a choice. And I spent the next year, I could throw my Bible down, and it would land on, and God, and God so loves you. He tattoos your name on the palms of his hands. I couldn't even find Jesus hung himself for a year in my Bible. <laughs> I'm exaggerating to be funny a little bit. But my point is, is that God was on, I'm going to teach you who you are, that you are deeply loved, that you are actually a son of God, that you actually were made in my image. And I began to go through this journey. Well, I happened to be reading the book of Genesis during that encounter, after that encounter. And I was, I was enamored always, I've always loved, you know, you, you, do you ever connect with Bible characters? Like, I connected with Jacob and Peter. Like, Jacob, because his father didn't like him, his brother didn't like him, and his mother loved him. No, your mother always loves you. You could be a drug addict, and your mother's like, oh, he's studying to be a pharmacist. <laughs> right? Your mother always loves you. And I related to Jacob because Jacob had a father who didn't like him. And he had a brother who didn't like him. And I felt like I could connect with Jacob. And so Jacob goes down to this well. And you probably know the story. And he meets this woman, Rachel. And he's like, oh, i got to marry this chick. She is, she's good. She's a good woman. Sorry, I forgot. Not my own church for just a second. And... Uh, I got to marry this woman. So anyway, I have to tell you this part. So if your name is Jacob or you have a son or a grandson or anyone named Jacob, it's a wonderful name. I love that name. In ancient Hebrew, though, it means liar. So it's not good when your father names you liar. Now, it doesn't mean that in, 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 you know, in our modern world. I get that. Moms write me all the time. I named my son Jacob. I know I love your son. He's awesome. You should change it to Israel. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But the deal is, is that Jacob really was a liar, if you know his story. Like, he was cheating and lying and deceiving, and it's just, it was his life. Well, he meets Rachel, and he wants to marry her, and, he inter and she introduces him to her father, who's named Levin. Now, what Jacob doesn't know is he's about to marry into a family whose father is a bigger liar than he is, which is a pretty big deal. So he works, his father says, Le Levin says, you can work seven years for Rachel, and I'll give you Rachel. So he works seven years, and they have this wedding, and as you probably know, Jewish weddings last a week, and they begin with um, consummating the marriage inside of a tent. So he goes into the, he goes into the, the, the wedding tent at, uh, after the, you know, the first night, and he goes to consummate the marriage, and he wakes up in the morning, and Leah, Rachel's older sister, is in his bed. Now, I don't know why it took him all night to figure that out. But let me just say, thank God for Thomas Edison. I don't know. <laughs> there are some weird stories in the Bible. When people say, God would never do that, I'm like, have you even read the Bible? 
I'm tempted. But anyway, I'll move on. So he comes out of the wedding tent and he says to Levin, did I not work seven years for Rachel? And he's like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, always married the oldest off first. Like you had seven years to tell me that. But Levin says, listen, I'll give you Rachel on credit. You can work for me for seven more years, but have Rachel now. And so Levin, so Jacob ends up with two wives and he works for Levin for 14 years and he makes Levin rich. Because everything Jacob touches turns to gold. And Levin is a, a very good Jewish businessman. So he knows Jacob is making him rich. So Jacob comes down, but he doesn't get along with him. Like they have this ongoing, I mean, they, they don't like each other. So finally, Jacob goes down to his fall and says, listen, I'm done. I'm leaving this place. I'm taking my wives. I'm going. And Levin says, no, stay, and I'll give you a signing bonus. I'll name your wage. And Jacob says to Levin, you have changed my wage 10 times since I've been here. You know, every time it benefits me, you change the wage. And Levin says, well, you name it and I'll pay it. So Jacob says, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll work for all the spotted and speckled sheep and goats. If they're spotted and speckled, they're mine. But if they're solid color, they're yours. And Levin says, okay, you got a deal. He probably think Jacob is stupid. But what happens next is one of the craziest stories in the Bible. Jacob goes down to the watering hole where the sheep and goats mate. And he takes branches and he carves spots and speckles in them. Folks, you can't make this stuff up. He carves spots and speckles in these branches. And when the goats and sheep are mating, the strong goats and sheep, the outstanding part of the flock, he puts the branches in front of them in front of the watering hole. And the craziest thing happens. Whatever they see at the watering hole, that's what they reproduce. And consequently, all the strong sheep and goats over the next several years, they're all spot and speckled. They're all Jacobs. And all the the sheep and goats, like dragging a leg, got a bad eye. They're all Levins. Oh yeah. This This is a freaking true story. One day I'm reading that. Remember, I'm in this season where God said, and it's time for you to change. Are you with me? I'm reading this and I'm like, hey, this is not a lesson in agriculture. God is revealing how his sheep reproduce. Are you with me? How his sheep reproduce. Whatever we see at the watering hole of our imagination, that's what we reproduce. And I begin to realize that we don't reproduce what we want to reproduce. We reproduce what we see at the watering hole of our imagination. Ladies, before there were mirrors, there was ponds and pools. Like before anyone invented a mirror, ladies would go down to the watering hole, to a watering hole, maybe even man-made, and they would, they would look at the reflection and that's how they'd fix, fix their, you know, whatever they do, with whatever they do for an hour down there. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, ladies, whatever that is, you do. And it, and it results in this. Wow. Just keep doing it. Anyway, so that was a good save, right? <laughs> and what I'm pointing out is that there's two ways to live. You can either react to what you don't want to be, or you can respond to the vision that God has given you for your life. 
But when you react to what you don't want to be, in order to react to what you don't want to be, you have to keep in mind what it is you don't want to be. Are you following me? And what I'm getting at is that, I'll share an example. Like I, in the first three or four years at Bethel, me and one other guy, we were our primary counselors. And I can't, I, I never counseled a child molester who wasn't themselves molested. Not one time. And almost every time, the molester would come in and say, I swore I'd never be like my father, my brother, my uncle, my cousin, my mother. Someone molested me. I swore I'd never be, I hate them. And I'd become like the very person I hated. And I realized something in this season of my life that you don't become what you want to become, but you become what you see, what you imagine at the watering hole of your imagination. And many people, many of us are reacting to what we don't want to be. I don't want to be like my dad who beat me. I don't want to be like my two crazy stepfathers. And the problem is, is that I have to keep in mind what I don't want to be. And the challenge is, is that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And I become the very thing I don't want to be. This is how we end up with systemic poverty. This is why people will live in a neighborhood where there's systemic, where there's absolute poverty and they can drive two miles into a place of prosperity, but they won't do it because they're reproducing what they saw at the watering hole of their parents' imagination. The other way I live is I envision the destiny God has for me. And how many understand whatever I see at the watering hole of my imagination, I reproduce. I don't reproduce what I want to reproduce. I reproduce what I see at the watering hole of my imagination. I, I, I want to say this from my own experience, and I hope this doesn't sound harsh. Unforgiveness will tether you to the past and will undermine your divine destiny. I want to say it one more time. Unforgiveness will tether I'm telling from experience. I was becoming the very people I couldn't stand in growing up in my house. But unforgiveness will tether you, will tie you to your past, and it will undermine your divine destiny in God. You, I love what Joyce Meyer said. She said, unforgiveness is like drinking deadly poison and thinking the other person is going to die. You think you're punishing your ex-husband. You think you're punishing your boss. You think you're punishing your spouse. When you don't forgive, you're like, I'll get you back. I'll just stay bitter. What's happening is it's killing you. And it kills, and it's contagious, and you can't keep it inside. It's like toxic waste. You bury it, but it seeps into the soil. And by the way, it has no friends. I feel to stay here for a minute. Unforgiveness has no friends. You're like, I hate my ex-husband, but pretty soon your kids can't stand you because it seeps into the soil of everything it touches. It is toxic. It is worse than the coronavirus. It is, you can't stop it with a mask. You can't inoculate yourself from it. You can only forgive. And I, I, I want to say, I didn't do this in first service, but I, I feel like there's a bunch of people in here you need to forgive. Like, you need to forgive. You're like, I'll never trust that person. I didn't say you need to trust them. I said you need to forgive them. Trust and forgiveness aren't the same thing. If someone rapes a woman in, a, in, the, in an alley, how many know she doesn't have to ever trust him? In fact, she probably ever, shouldn't ever trust him. But she is obligated by the fact that she's been forgiven by Jesus Christ to extend forgiveness to that person and give God, let God bring about justice, if that makes sense. And I think that for some of you, 
Again, this, I didn't do this, right, last service, but I feel like there's some of you, you have tied forgiveness and trust together, and therefore you think that because you have to trust them again, that you can't forgive them. And I'm like, I would untie those things, and I would release them because your destiny is in untethered, being untethered from that thing. So, just bow your head for a moment. I, 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 wanna, I wanna just give you, I, I'm not gonna call you forward, I'm not gonna do anything. I, I feel like the Holy Spirit said, give them a moment to think about what you just said. So if you have someone in your life, or some buddies, or some people, or some church, or some organization, or some politician, I mean, it just goes on and on, that, that you're carrying bitterness for. I want, Holy Spirit, I want you just to show them right now. It's going to come to your mind, probably often in a picture or in a, in, a, in a little still small voice in your mind. And then I want you to do this. I want you to commit to Jesus that when you go home today, that you will take the first step to forgive them, that you will forgive them. How many, how many of you saw someone that you needed to forgive? Just raise your hand. I'm not trying to embarrass you, but... How many? Yeah, nearly everyone in here. Okay, so listen, you got business to do with the Holy Spirit when you get home. We're not going to do it right now. The Holy Spirit's going to follow you home, and he's going to help you to release that person. You may have to do something like write a letter. You may have to call them. There, there may be something that you need to do. I'm not saying you necessarily do, but sometimes the Holy Spirit's like, okay, you really forgive them? Pick up the phone and tell them. Or write them a letter. Or maybe it's you you have to forgive. How many of you have ever failed in here? Yeah, Kathy has. <laughs> Probably figured out which one of us is messy in the marriage, right? It's definitely me. I, I, I love this. You know, John Maxwell said, there's a saying that you are not what you think you are, and you're not what others think you are, but you become what you think others think you are. But John said, that's not really perfectly accurate. He said, you're not what you think you are, and you're not what others think you are, but you become what you think the most important person in your life thinks you are. Did you get all that? And I, I read that, and I'm thinking, that's true, because if you think that God's the most important person in your life, I mean, if God's the most important person in your life, then you become what you think God thinks of you. Right? Right? But if what you think God thinks of you isn't what he thinks, then you're not becoming what God thinks of you. You're becoming what you think he thinks, which isn't what he thinks. Therefore, you're not becoming a figure of God's imagination, but a deformity of God's imagination, because what you think he thinks isn't what he thinks. And that's why in Romans 12, too, it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What am I doing when I renew my mind? I'm thinking what he thinks, not what I think he thinks, but what he actually thinks. And when I think what he thinks about me, I actually become what he thinks I think. That's a good word. I, I, I'm trying to point out that it matters what you think God thinks of you. And it matters that what you think God thinks of you is actually what he does think of you. Did you get all that in the little puzzle? That if what you think God thinks, if you think God's angry with me, how many understand that you will walk, you will walk with, with a sense of, of shame because you think God thinks of you badly? Do you get that? It so matters what you think he thinks of you. 
You can look into the eyes of a person and, and know what he thinks God thinks of him. Good word, Chris. Thank you. That's all right. I brought my encouragement with me. <laughs> Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Let's finish the story of Jacob. So Jacob finally does leave. And he's miserable now and rich. How many know it's a lot better to be miserable and rich than poor and rich? I mean, I mean miserable and poor because at least you can go shopping. <laughs> By the way, that's Proverbs 32. His, his father-in-law doesn't like him. His wives don't like each other. They often don't even like him. His father doesn't like him. His brother wants to kill him. He's not having a good life. And so he leaves that place and he tells his wives, you guys go on to the other city. I'll catch up with you. He's got all, this, uh, all these flocks and all these herds. I mean, he's like incredibly wealthy. But, and Jacob goes down to a city called Jabbok. The name, Hebrew name Jabbok means empty and alone. Anyone ever visited there? Anyone ever vacationed there? Anyone ever born there? And Jacob goes to Jabbok and he prays to God for help. And God sends him an angel. Now you know you're having a bad life when the angel that's sent to help you, he don't like you either. <laughs> and the Bible says that Jacob wrestled with the angel all night. And finally the angel says to him, my shift is over, let me go. It's kind of the amplified version. And Jacob says, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. And he dislocates Jacob's leg and he walks with the limp the rest of his life. And finally, Jacob hangs on. But ha Jacob hangs on. And the angel finally says to Jacob, what is your name? What is your name? And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. Remember, old Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, liar, cheater, deceiver. He says to him, no longer shall your name be Jacob, but your name shall be Israel. Israel means a prince with God. And, the, and Jacob lets him go. Would, if you wrestled with the angel all night for a blessing and he called you by a nickname, would you let him go? Not me. I'd be getting me some dang stuff. <laughs> for sure. Well, you would if you realized that sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will take away your future. And Jacob lets the angel go. And how many know his name has changed to Israel and he becomes the father of a nation? How many understand that many people are living under an alias name, a name that God did not give you. How many understand that woman never had a child till her name was changed to Eve, the mother of the living? Abram to Abraham, the father of a nation. Sarai to Sarah, the mother of a nation. How many know that, that, that Simon had to be changed to Peter and, and Saul to Paul? And how many know when Adam named the animals, he didn't call them Spot, Fifi, and Trigger? In the Hebrew, it actually says, when it says that Adam named the animals, I understand Adam didn't speak English, but if you will, when he said to the living creature, by the way, we're not called animals, they were called living creatures. When Adam, Adam made the, I'm sorry, uh, God made the animals out of dust, and he waited to see what Adam would name them. The word there in the Hebrew is, is to create with God. 
When he said, and I know it didn't happen in English, but when he said, lion to the living creature, lion, you are a lion, he was literally releasing the DNA of the lion into him. When he said rabbit, he was literally releasing the DNA of the rabbit in him. He was co-creating with God. It matters what you think your name is. I'd say that the greatest lie in all Christendom is that you're a sinner saved by grace. That is not true. Let me say this again. It is not true that you're a sinner saved by grace. It is true that you were a sinner. Listen, it is important that we never forget where we came from. That we were sinners and we have to relate to people who have not yet had the experience that we have so graciously received by mercy and graciously got for free. Nothing we did. But when we received Christ, we went from sinners to saints. Some people are like, oh, it's just semantics. It's a name. And if you believe you're a sinner, you will sin by faith. You didn't even get what I just said. There is a whole world of Christendom, and I'll be careful because I realize I'm not at my house. But there is a whole world of Christendom actually, actually naming themselves the name of sin and wondering why they can't get out of it. You will always reproduce the environment around you that you believe you have within you. If you, take a, if you take a pauper and you put him in a palace, he will make the palace a prison. I don't know if this is going to be offensive, but it is the truth. When I was a boy, I was, I, when I was in my teens, it was, there was the whole thing of, of homelessness was a big deal again. It became a, a politicized deal, just like it is today. And the answer to the, in that day was, let's build apartment complexes and put the homeless people in them for free. And listen, I, we work with the homeless. I love homeless. Kathy and I give thousands of dollars to it every year. So I want you to understand, I have tons of compassion. But we also have to learn by history. And what happened to those apartment complexes, and you can go check it out, is they became the worst ghettos in our nation. You know why? Because whenever you put someone in an environment around them that's better than the environment in them, they will reduce the environment around them to the environment they have within them. And they destroyed those houses. They literally threw their own toilets out on the front lawn. They broke out their windows. And this is not conjecture. This is not, this is not make-believe. This has actually really happened. When you put somebody in, a, in an environment around them, then it's, then it's better than they believe they have within them. They will reduce the environment around them. But if you take a prince and you put him in a prison, he'll make the prison a palace. It's the story of Joseph. They put Joseph, you may not know the story, but they took Old Testament Joseph and they put him in, in slavery. They sold him into slavery. And you know what happened? He became the captain of the house. He became the most trusted, the most trusted employee of his, of his leader. They took him from there and they put him in the prison. And he became the head of the prison. And by the way, and both times it says, and Joseph was a successful man in Potiphar's house. And Joseph was a successful man in prison. How did he become a successful man in prison? Because the environment around you becomes, the environment in you becomes the environment around you. We have a lot of people complaining about the environment. And I'll tell you, it's not so much the environment. Listen, listen. The, the, God starts from the inside out. We want, you know, people belong, believe, and behave. And part of what happens in churches is we want people to be, be, behave who don't even belong or believe. And we reverse the role. God's like, I always start from the inside out. Are you following me? 
And so I, I, I just want to point out that, that Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's Jesus. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Everybody in here needs to have a big as. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need a big as. Because if you don't love you, you won't love them. As you love yourself. You have to have a big ass. You have to know that you, you are loved. You have to love you. Listen, some people are like, oh, you know, some people think that they are being humble when they say bad things about themselves. You're not being humble. You're being stupid. Good point, Chris. I remember I was doing this prophetic training for five days and uh, it was in this mega church. I had met the senior pastor, but not the school leader. So I was doing this for the school. And so the first, uh, first day, the first 10 minutes of class, I was thought, well, before I teach them how to prophesy, I should teach them why. So I said to them, this is your mission if you would receive it. That you would find the gold in the midst of every person, both Christian and pre-Christian. And that you would call out the greatness inside of every person. Well, as I said, that last statement, a man walked in the back door and we were like, uh, probably like 30 of us at these long tables inside this beautiful, ornate pastor's lounge. That's where we had the class. And they were sitting on both sides of the table, and I was on the end. And this man walked in, who I had never met before, and he sat down, and as soon as he heard me say, and the goal is to find the greatness that lives in every person, both Christian and pre-Christian. And he sits down, and he raises his hand. He has a question. We've been in class for literally eight minutes. And I'm going to be here for five days. I'm like, this is going to be a long class. I said, sir, can I help you? You have a question. He says, I believe God is great. <laughs> Did your mind ever talk to you? <laughs> My mind's like, uh-oh, be careful. Be careful. I believe God is great. I said, did I say something that made you feel that God wasn't great? He said, you said that we're to find the gold, the greatness in every person, both Christian and pre-Christian. I said, I said Yeah. He said, well, I believe that you're creating doctrine that releases arrogance and pride in people. Uh-oh, be careful. <laughs> warning, warning, warning. Well, I said, I said to him, well, I believe that the church has emasculated and castrated people in the name of humility, and it's killing us. When I said that, the entire class simultaneously went, oh. I'm like, oh, crap, this must be somebody important. And I said to him, there was a beautiful painting on the wall. It was, a, it was a landscape painting. I said, see that painting? He said, yes. I said, let's pretend you're, 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 that, let's pretend you're the artist. He said, okay. So you, you, you paint it. He, I said, he said, okay. I said, so, oh, I said, let's, let's pretend God's the artist. He said, okay. I said, so, so I said, what a stupid looking painting. That's the ugliest painting I've ever seen. What a stupid looking painting. Then I said to him, did did, when, did demeaning the painting glorify the artist? He said, no. I said, you didn't paint you. God did. Jesus was the model, and God was the painting. God was the, uh, the, the artist. You can't insult the painting without insulting God. He said, I have three theological degrees, and I never knew that. I said, you come to school ministries, it's much cheaper. <laughs> Turned out that he was the head of the class. 
Let me just say we didn't get along so well the rest of the day. How many know that you can't speak bad about yourself and not insult God? Because you didn't make you. I remember years ago when our, we have, I told you we have how many grandkids we have. See how I'm focusing? I'm not thinking about that plane going over head that you're all look, you're all like, wondering what kind of plane that is while I'm preaching. I, I know you're not doing that. Nor were you thinking about what was in the ambulance when it drove by with the sirens flaring or the birds that were pooping on the thing when I was preaching. You know what happens when birds poop on my car? I go out with a set of chicken wings and I just eat it right in front of them. Just to let them know. You might want to be careful whose car you crap on. You never know what's coming next. When my grandkids were little, our two, our two oldest was uh, Misha and Elijah. And I think they were like seven and six. And we went to Marine World with them. And we took, we took like five of our grandkids, but two of them stayed in our room. And we were really poor in those days because I have, you know, uh, you know what? Uh, let me just say, if you have really bad life, just write a book about it. It won't improve your life, but at least you'll get money from the book. So we hadn't written any books yet, so we we're still pretty poor. And we were, and so we, we go to uh, Marine World, and we stayed in like a Motel 6 or 8 or whatever it was. And it's one of those motels where the, it's a really small room. They have a king-size bed you can hardly get around. And they have this massive television that you can't watch the whole television at the same time because the room's not big enough to sit back far enough. So my grandkids, my Misha, who's like a little peanut, and Elijah's like the man, but she's one year older. They're sitting on the edge of the bed, and they're watching this documentary on reptiles. And they're watching the lizards, and the crocodiles, and the snakes. And they're like, and you know, they're sitting on the bed, and literally the TV's right here. Right. <laughs> the documentary gets over, and Misha says to Elijah, let's wrestle. And they jump up on top of the bed, which is the most fun thing to do, right? And she said, I'm a crocodile, and you're a lizard. We're, we're, Kathy and I are in the bathroom. I go, this is going to be good. <laughs> so I kind of step out of the bathroom. I'm watching from the door, and he goes, all right. And she goes, and, and he goes, rah! And he grabs her, and he throws her on the bed, and he jumps on top of her. And she goes, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're a lizard. <laughs> he gets off her, and he goes, what do, what do lizards do? She goes, lizards go, And he goes, all right. So they face off again, and she goes, rah! And she grabs him, she throws him on the bed, and she jumps on top of him, his little head sticking out here. And he, he's going. <laughs> and he can throw her right off, but every time he moves her, she goes, you can't do that, you're a lizard. <laughs> Five minutes passes. Kathy and I are dying laughing. And he's, first he's going. His little head. And pretty soon he's like. Then this little voice, Papa, yeah, I don't want to play anymore. I don't want to be the lizard. <laughs> One day I was thinking about that story. I was thinking about how the church is the, is the lizard and the devil's a big crocodile. The crocodile, like we're the powerless lizard and we're living in a crocodile world. And we say croc, we say lizard things. When things go wrong, we're like, well, bro, all we can do now is pray in tongues. <laughs> 
And I'd like to propose that you are not the lizard. That you are the crocodile. That you are the crocodile. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are a crocodile. Say to your other neighbor, you are not a lizard. Okay. I want to point out that when you received Christ, you became a new creation. In the, that, that verse, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. There's two Greek words for the word new. One means new like never before created. The other, no, one means new like you got a new car. The other means new like prototype. Prototype, never before created. This word, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. That word is prototype. It means never before created. When you received Jesus Christ, you became a new species of creature. You're the first species of creature that we know of, at least, that lives in heaven and on earth simultaneously. When you received Jesus Christ, you received a new heart and a new mind. You literally became the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You actually have, you actually became the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And four chapters later, he said, you're the light of the world. Are you with me? Like, it's not your nature to sin. You are not a sinner. You were a sinner. Paul said, while we were yet sinners. Did you get that? While we were yet sinners. The love of God was shown in the world while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. But the point he's making is we're not anymore. That when Jesus died on the cross and we received him, we actually received a new nature. You didn't do it. He did it. You're not saying, I'm so amazing because I did this. You're saying, I'm so amazing because he did this. And I actually became a child of God. And I actually have, like there's a river that runs through my soul. It runs towards the throne. If I don't paddle, I'll end up at God's house. I'm saying the stream that runs through my soul runs to righteousness, not wickedness. It's not even my nature to sin. Or you're saying we can't sin. I never said that. You have a free will. I said it's not your nature to sin. Well, how can you sin without a sin nature? Adam did. When God created everything, look at Genesis 1. He said it was all very good. If Adam had a sin nature, he could have not been called very good. How many know that Adam made the wrong decision, but he had, he did not have sin making him make that decision. He did it out of free will. That's what made it worse, is that he didn't have any reason to blame God for, well, you gave me a sin nature, and that's why I made that choice. No, I gave you a good nature, and you made the wrong choice. Are you with me? And I'm pointing out, and did you know that when, when, the, when the serpent tempted Eve in the garden, he said, can you not eat from any of the trees? And she said, we can eat from any of the trees, but this one tree, you can't eat or touch it, at least we die. You remember this? And the servant said, surely you will not die. For in the day that you eat that tree, you will be like God. How many know they were already like God? Because they were created in the image and likeness of God. How many know they were trying to get through performance what they already had through creation? Did you get that? You can't work for righteousness. You're already righteous. All you can do is accept it and walk it out. You know the difference between condemnation and conviction? Condemnation is from the devil, right? Condemnation said, you sinned, you are a sinner. Condemnation says, you got drunk, you're an alcoholic. Condemnation says, you, you watch pornography, you're a pervert. What I'm getting at is the devil always wants to connect your action with your identity. 
Because once he convinces you that your action is your identity, he doesn't have to bother you anymore because you always reproduce the environment around you that you believe you have within you. But conviction says you're way too awesome to be acting like that. When you lie and and the Holy Spirit comes in your life, he goes, you're better than that. You're a child of the king. Why are you behaving like that? When you you, you look at porn, he goes, wait, you're a holy people, a royal priesthood, God's son. You've been, you've been, you've been invested in by the Holy Spirit. You serve a holy God, and you live on holy ground. That is way below you. He doesn't commit. He doesn't. He doesn't attach my identity to my sin. He detaches my identity from my sin, and he goes, "You're so much better than that." You are so much better than that. Stop it. Well, I, I'm addicted to pornography. I'm sorry you are not addicted to pornography. You're addicted to the idea of pornography, and you're, you're behaving like the powerless lizard. But you are not the lizard, and pornography is not a crocodile. You are a child of God. You take one guy like Daniel, and you put him in a wicked kingdom like Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. One guy, one righteous guy will turn the kingdom upside down. Those who've turned the world upside down, they've come here. That is you. Well, I don't believe that's true. That's why you're stuck, because you don't believe it's true. Because if you don't, how many know, if you don't believe, if you believe you're a sinner, you will sin by faith. Because it's by faith that you were infused with righteousness. (laughs) You got that look. This is the San Diego look. This is the lizard look. You never want to take on the name of your sin because then you will reproduce it by nature when it isn't your nature. Are you with me? One more point and I'm done. You were born for glory. People say, well, I, don't want to steal, I don't want to steal the glory of God. They sing a great song, and you're like, that's a great song. Wow, you did great. And they go, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. I always want to say, it wasn't that good. <laughs> bro, bro, bro. I don't want to steal the glory of God. Like, you some big person. You could steal the glory of the God who made everything. <laughs> Can you imagine? I stole the glory from God. Oh, I thought so. I prayed this morning. He didn't seem to have any glory. Bunch of stupid people. John 17, Jesus is praying to his father about us. And he says, here's one of the lines. Father, the glory you gave me, I want to give to them. The glory glory you gave me, I want to give to them that they may be one. You can't steal it. He gave it to you. I can't buy my son a car and give him the keys and have him drive out and call police. He stole my car. Well, that's funny. The title seems to be in his name. How many of you have ever quoted Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God? How many of you have ever quoted that in trouble? I have many times. How many of you know all things work together for good in the end? So if it's not good, it ain't the end. You got a kid that's in trouble? You're like, oh my gosh, something's wrong. Listen, have you prayed for him? Did you dedicate him to God? Yeah, well, it ain't the end. He's working on his testimony. Got to have a test so he can have money. But do you know why all things work together for good? Do you know why? It's in the next verse. 
So Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good for those who love God are called according to his purpose. Next verse says, for whom, for whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. How can you steal what God gave you? Do you know that you are his sons and daughters? You know, when I have grandkids and they play basketball and cheerleading and everything, and you know, when my son makes a basket, my grandson, I'm shouting, whose boy is that? I don't go, I'm better than him. I would have made the last basket trying to steal the glory of the Velita name out there. Stinking kid, you're not better than me. No, he is extending the Valentin name. He is, did something amazing. I'm like, whose boy is that? Hey, see those children? Who, who, who's, whose kids are those? I am proud when my kids do something amazing because they are extending the Valentin name. Are you, are you, are you with me? I, I just want to finish with this last verse. In John 17, I'm sorry, in John 20, Peter and John are running to the tomb. This is, Mary has... Jesus has risen from the dead. Mary has told the boys, hey, the Lord's risen. So Peter and John run to the tomb. By the way, I love this part. It says, and John got there first. <laughs> Do you ever notice that John is the only, in the book of the gospel, John is the only place that calls John the disciple whom Jesus loved? In every other gospel, it's like John. <laughs> John calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. Remember what they fought about? Who's the greatest? So Peter, it says that Peter and John ran to the tomb. And John notes that he got there first. I wrote in the side like, and who cares? Peter and John ran to the tomb. John got there first. Thanks for that important information. Someone probably gets saved off of that piece of information. But Peter ran all the way into the tomb, which I really identify with Peter because I'm a ready, shoot, aim kind of guy. Peter runs into the tomb, and they see Jesus is gone, right? And they see two linen wrappings. The one that covered the head is now folded up and put in another place. And the one that covered the body is still in the place where the body once lied. Why? Romans 8 says this. Something powerful. You should read it. Romans 8. Listen, we're going to read the whole three chapters, so just... Romans 8, sir, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that's about to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of sons, for the sons of God. For creation was subjected to fertility not willingly, but because him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would also be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom, get this, of the glory of the children of God. What's my point? My point was, when Jesus rose from the dead, the head was revealed, but the body has yet to be revealed. And creation is groaning, waiting for the glorious children of God to be revealed so creation can be set free. How many know when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for humans? He said, preach this gospel to all creation. How many know that creation was cursed when Adam fell? The ground was cursed. And how many of you know that creation is waiting for its salvation? And it gets its salvation when the sons of God understand that they were born for glory. Would you stand?